In February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be the speaker at a Bible conference held by Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for the weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. There was far more material than I could ever deal with in just four lectures. Since that time, I've expanded those initial four lectures into a total of 14 messages, of which you are listening to one of these. I encourage those who are listening to these messages to visit my publishing website at at triumphantpublications.com, and you can read for free a written version based on all of these 14 messages. These messages are being compiled into a book titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. This book will soon be uh, available by mid-June of this year, 2013. My website will guide you on how to purchase a hard copy when available. If you don't want to purchase a hard version, you can read the, main, the transcript of the book by simply going to my website and clicking on the appropriate box titled Theistic Evolution, A Simple Compromise Transcript. Also on my publishing website, I've listed links to all these audio messages found on Sermon Audio under the general topic, Theistic Evolution, A Simple Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen and or read about this very dangerous view that is gaining ground, unfortunately, among certain churches and institutions. In this particular message, titled, A Clash of Worldviews, Creationism, and Evolution, I will seek to demonstrate that the problem with Christianity and evolution, including theistic evolution, is that we, is that we don't have a clash between faith and science, but a clash of faith versus faith. That is, we have a clash of worldviews. The Bible was written by the one who created the universe and who was there to see everything that happened. From an evolutionary perspective, no one was there to observe the chemicals becoming the first cell or watch a fish slowly develop legs or turn into an amphibian over millions of years, or see a reptile develop wings and become a bird. I know that the fundamental difference between an atheistic evolutionist and a theistic evolutionist is that the theistic evolutionists claim that God used the process of evolution to create all life as we know it. Obviously, they do not want to rule out the supernatural. What I find so grievous is that theistic evolutionists apparently see the necessity of supernatural intervention. Therefore, why is it so difficult for them to simply accept the plain and natural reading of Genesis as a historically accurate account of creation? The real problem begins to emerge. Various elements of the Christian community are in crisis over the supremacy and authority of Scripture. This is the major problem. God's Word clearly and unmistakably affirms that God supernaturally created man from the dust of the earth instantaneously. And professing Christians are simply unwilling to believe God's Word at face value. In future messages, I'm going to demonstrate how the Christian community is being bombarded by some in the visible church of the Lord Jesus who insist 
that there's no problem with accepting the Bible as truth, together with God using the fundamental principles of Darwinian thought as the mode of creation. These men insist that the church must seriously consider what science has said in terms of properly interpreting the Bible. I consider such men as compromisers of the faith and their views as a sinful capitulation that makes the authority of Scripture subservient to the whimsical and oftentimes ever-changing scientific data. God's Word, which is special revelation, is never to be scrutinized by general revelation, that is, the created realm. God's Word is never to be scrutinized by external sources, particularly the godless views of men in rebellion to God, who under no circumstances will submit to the Lordship of Christ. What is so grievous is that these Bible teachers accept the presuppositions of atheistic evolution as if the opinions of unbelievers can give us an accurate understanding of the cosmos. This is an error of immense proportions, one that strikes at the fundamental biblical teaching of the nature of man. The Bible unequivocally teaches that unbelievers have their minds darkened, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, who walk in the futility of their minds, Ephesians 4.17, who are pawns of the devil, being held captive by him to do his will, 2 Timothy 2.26, and who are slaves to their sinful lusts, John 8.34. In short, the Bible calls them fools. The scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. We are warned in Colossians 2, verse 8, which says, quote, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. End of quote from God's word. Colossians 2, verse 3 says, That in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To not presuppose Christ as the true dispenser of all knowledge is to commit intellectual suicide. It is useful to divide science into two different areas, operational science and historical or origins science. Everyone has presuppositions that shape their interpretation of the evidence. Creationists and evolutionists have the same evidence. They simply interpret it within different frameworks or worldviews. Sadly, modern man has granted science with a type of secularized deity, and everything must bow to this fetish idol. It must be recognized that all questions of origins fall outside of the realm of empirical science. If science is not subordinate to scripture, then scripture will become subordinate to science. And then science itself will become autonomous, meaning, that is, a law unto itself. Either God is sovereign or science deifies itself. True knowledge proceeds from the truth of God's supernatural revelation found in the Scripture alone. To conduct science apart from Scripture and its authority constitutes what we call epistemological suicide. Epistemology is the study of the grounds of knowledge. While it may be true that Scripture is not a detailed textbook on science, Whenever the scripture speaks in areas pertaining to science, 
and Scripture speaks without error. We must never forget what I call a biblical maxim, which is, man is not what he says he is, man is what God says he is. If an idea is not testable, repeatable, observable, and falsifiable, it is not considered within the confines of operational science. I just mentioned the fundamental aspects of what we call the scientific method. Modern science has been hijacked by a materialistic worldview and has been elevated as the ultimate means of obtaining knowledge of the cosmos. In a biblical worldview, scientific observations are interpreted from the presupposition that truth is found only in the Bible. In Reformed circles, we refer to this as the self-attesting nature of Scripture, which is what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches in its chapter 1 of Scripture. Historical science interprets evidence from past events based on a presupposed philosophical point of view. The past is not directly observable, testable, reputable, or falsifiable. Therefore, it's outside the parameters of operational science. Neither creation nor evolution is based on such criteria. Atheistic evolution assumes that there was no God, while the Bible assumes that God was the creator of the universe, ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. Of course, I'm fully aware that by my last comment that I'm rejecting the theistic evolutionist view that the biblical phraseology of God created creating Adam from dust and Eve from Adam's rib can be interpreted from a Darwinian perspective. Such a hermeneutic does extreme violence to the plain meaning of Scripture, violating the fundamental hermeneutic of the Westminster Confession, which states that Scripture interprets Scripture. The reality is, when we start from two opposite presuppositions, Looking at the same facts of general revelation, we will derive two totally differing views of the history of the universe. Again, the argument is not fundamentally over the facts of the created world, per se. It's over how the facts should be interpreted. This is why the issue is a clash of worldviews. Operational science is based upon repeatable and testable observations which we call the utilization of the scientific method. The problem is that evolution has been elevated to the status of operational science. As mentioned earlier, no evolutionist was present 14.5 billion years ago to observe the so-called ridiculous Big Bang. This date for the universe is pure speculation and has undergone more than a few changes over past decades. Even though proponents of the Big Bang try to give mathematical models for the age of the universe. As I have argued earlier, the universe is basically 6,000 years old, and there are quite a few bona fide scientists who subscribe to that understanding. They are known as young earth creationists, who are periodically mocked not only in scientific communities, but now are being mocked in theological circles where they shouldn't be mocked. A person cannot escape his presuppositions. Remember, all facts must be interpreted. We cannot escape our worldview. The evolutionist claims that he is neutral, 
that he is unbiased, that he's not religious. Such a claim is ludicrous. All views of the origin of life are fundamentally religious. All views are faith propositions. Philosophically, the debate then becomes which worldview best accounts for this created realm. I and others believe that the evolutionary worldview is, in, is inherently irrational and utterly absurd. When dealing with the origin of the universe, there is fundamentally only two views. One, that God is eternal, and two, that matter is eternal. Christianity maintains that to presuppose the eternality and rationality of God is far, far more rational than the evolutionary scheme that makes matter eternal. Frankly, I'm sick and tired of Christians being put on the defensive. Here's what we cannot escape. We are here. We exist. The world exists. And... We live in a very complex, orderly, created realm that is even amazing to evolutionists. Years ago, when I was in college and still in the pre-med curriculum, majoring in zoology, I was on vacation with my family in Wisconsin, where my parents were originally from and where most of my extended family still lives. My cousin, who was much older than me by about 12 years or so, invited me to have a tour of the medical center at the University of Wisconsin. She had a Ph.D. in physiology, working in the field of neurophysiology. The scope of her work and her associates was seeking to find medical breakthroughs, uh, breakthroughs, that is, in dealing with paralysis. When I arrived at her office, she first showed me her human brain under her desk. My first thought was, was I related to a modern version of Frankenstein? She would then take me uh, to meet her colleagues, who was saying that uh, one of the, her colleagues was saying he was trying to break a chemical bond in the nerve synapse by using a centrifuge, but he couldn't break uh, this uh, chemical bond. I will never forget his words. He excitedly exclaimed, the evolution of this has to be incredible. No praise to God, of course, as the Creator. At the time, I was a young Christian, but I was aware of the Scripture, especially Colossians 1.17, where it says that Jesus Christ is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I am sure that the chemical bond could eventually be broken somehow, but here was this scientist seeing the amazing complexity of the human body and praising evolution and not the Creator. This is what I mean. Men are marveled by the greatness of the created realm, but do unbelievers give praise to God? Of course not. But they do give praise to their pagan god, evolution. As Romans 1 states, they do worship the creature rather than the creator. Scientific theories must be testable and capable of being proven false. Neither evolution nor biblical creation qualifies as a scientific theory in that sense because each deals with historical events that 
cannot be tested, repeated, and falsified. Both are based on unobserved assumptions about past events. No theory of origins can avoid using philosophical statements as their foundation. Creationists use a supernatural, intelligent designer, the God of Scripture, to explain the origin of the universe. Evolutionists, on the other hand, use time plus chance as an explanation. The consistent creationist begins with the God of the Bible as his underlying presupposition to explain the facts of the universe because God is the only true interpreter of such facts. Atheistic evolutionists, however, presuppose their own opinions as valid, independent interpretations of the facts. Theistic evolutionists are guilty of two great errors. First, they unwittingly accept the presuppositions of unbelieving men. Second, they take these presuppositions of unbelieving men and make the scripture conform to these ungodly presuppositions. I fully understand why confessing unbelievers think the way they do. But for confessing Christians to bow to presuppositions and conclusions of these foolish men and then insist that the Christian community reinterpret the scripture in light of these opinions is unconscionable and is sinful. So, the great reformational doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone, is made a servant of science as interpreted by pagans. This is the sinful compromise of theistic evolution. We saw that 11, Hebrews 11 verse 3 says that by faith we believe that God created all things out of nothing. At least the faith of the Christian is rooted in the self-attesting word of God, not in the faith propositions of those in rebellion to God. If someone expects me to argue that the Bible is true without using the Bible as evidence, they are effectively stacking the deck against me. They are insisting that the facts are neutral. But facts are never neutral. They must always be interpreted. A fact that is a true fact is God's fact. The consistent Christian chooses to always filter the facts through the filter of Scripture. All others choose to filter the facts through themselves as independent interpreters of truth. Evolutionary thinking is inescapably religious at its very foundation. It is wholly untrue that the issue is science versus faith. No, it is one faith in opposition to another faith. It is a clash of worldviews, plain and simple. At least some evolutionists are more honest than others in admitting the religious or philosophical nature of evolution. During the 1993 annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Canadian science philosopher Dr. Michael Roos made this admission on the religious nature of evolution at a symposium titled, quote, The New Anti-Evolutionism. He said, quote, at some very basic level, evolution as a scientific theory makes a commitment to a kind of naturalism, namely, 
that at some level one is going to exclude miracles and these sort of things, come what may. Evolution, akin to religion, involves making certain a priori or metaphysical assumptions, which at some level cannot be proven empirically. End of quote. Metaphysics addresses questions about the universe that are beyond the scope of the physical sciences. The term a priori means reasoning that proceeds from an assumed cause. It is knowledge independent of experience. In other words, Michael Roos is admitting that evolution is not proved by the scientific method. Usually the science community ridicules the religious community for this kind of thing. That is, beliefs that are just assumed to be true. Therefore, this is a great admission. But it really is an accurate admission from this evolutionist. One of the criticisms hurled against creationists is the context of public education is that creationism is all about faith and is therefore religious while evolution is all about science. And science is science and not religious. Of course, this is an incredible smokescreen and absolutely not true. It's a clever ploy of the devil, and sadly it is working for the time being. D.J. Futuyama, an ardent evolutionist, has said, quote, Creationist theories rest not on evidence that can withstand the skeptical mind, but on wishful thinking in the Bible, the voice of authority, which is the only source of creationist belief, end of quote. Futuyama's comments are most telling. Of course creationism will not be accepted by a skeptic's mind. That's the point. The skeptic is a skeptic, and no amount of evidence will convince him, simply because all knowledge is interpreted knowledge, and we don't expect skeptics to be anything but skeptics. Of course the Bible calls them fools, who are entrenched in the world's philosophy and rebellion to God, they are blinded by the God of this world, the devil, as 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4 states, and they have their minds blinded by this diabolical being. This would be viewed as absolute nonsense to the skeptic. But again, as I have stated, man is not what he says he is. Man is what God says he is. And God has said that the skeptic is blind and a fool. Fukuyama is correct when he says that the creationist's voice of authority is the Bible. The bottom line is, the issue is a class of worldviews, a class, a clash, that is, of religious views. Just like so many evolutionists, they think that creationists ignore the evidences. No, creationists don't ignore the evidences. Like all knowledge, and like all evidences, they must be interpreted. Hence, all evidence will be interpreted from one's worldview. The evolutionist begins with a mindset of re willful rebellion against God and his revelation. It is a total falsehood to view creationism as a religion and not equally view evolution as a religion. Let me read from a pamphlet 
written by the Humanist Society in California. It reads, quote, Humanism is a belief that man shapes his own destiny. It is a constructive philosophy, a non-theistic religion, a way of life. Richard Leonton, a Marxist atheist, has admitted the following, quote, Yet whatever our understanding of the social struggle that gives rise to creationism, whatever the desire to reconcile science and religion may be, there is no escape from the fundamental contradiction between evolution and creationism. They are irreconcilable worldviews. That is spoken by an evolutionist. He understands the clash is that of worldviews. It is most telling what British biologist and evolutionist L. Harrison Matthews said in his introduction of a 1971 publication of Darwin's Origin of Species about the religious nature of evolution when he said, quote, The fact of evolution is the backbone of biology. And biology is thus in the peculiar position of being a science founded on an unproven theory. Is it then a science or a faith? Belief in the theory of evolution is thus exactly parallel to belief in special creation. Both are concepts which believers know to be true, but neither up to the present has been capable of proof, end of quote. That is from an evolutionist. He understands also that evolution is a religious perspective. Let's consider what G.R. Bosworth wrote in American Atheist. He wrote the following comments, which demonstrates that hatred that some have towards the Christian faith. He writes, quote, Christianity has fought, still fights, and will fight science to the desperate end of evolution. Because evolution destroys utterly, and finally, the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve and and the original sin, and in the rubble you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what evolution means, then Christianity is nothing. End of quote. Now that is an incredible quote. Theistic evolutionists should pay close attention to what I have just emphasized in this previous quote by an evolutionist. He says, destroy Adam and Eve and the original sin, and in the rubble you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. Even God-haters understand the implications of an evolutionary thought on the veracity of of Christianity. But no, we have prominent churchmen today who have bought into the lies of evolution and are trying to justify marrying evolution with Christianity. It really is shameful. Sir Julian Huxley was the grandson of noted evolutionist Thomas Huxley, who was a personal friend of Darwin. Julian was one of the most consistent evolutionists of his time. He made this startling comment 
about the religious nature of evolutionary thought. He said, quote, The evolutionary vision is enabling us to discern, however incompletely, the elements of the new religion that we can be sure will rise to serve the needs of the coming era. End of quote. In a book that Julian Huxley co-authored with British evolutionist Jacob Bronowski, they say the following in their book, quote, A religion is essentially an attitude to the world as a whole. Thus, evolution, for example, may prove as a powerful and a principle to coordinate man's beliefs in hopes as God was in the past, end of quote. Marjorie Grenet, a philosopher and historian of science, has said this about the religious nature of evolutionary thinking. She says, quote, It is a religion in science that Darwinian chiefly held. Well, that is, she says, It is a religion in science that Darwinism chiefly held and holds men's minds. The modified but still characteristically Darwinian theory has itself become an orthodoxy, preached by its adherents with religious fervor, and doubted, they feel, only by a few muddlers imperfect in scientific faith. End of quote. As I have mentioned, Christianity and evolutionary thinking are two competing and contrasting worldviews. Sir Karl Popper, a leading philosopher of science and an evolutionist, has said, quote, I have come to the conclusion that Darwinism is not a testable scientific theory, but a metaphysical research program, a possible framework for testable scientific theories, end of quote. It is proper for evolutionary thought to be viewed as science and creationism as only religious belief and not qualifying as legitimate science? Note this admission from Drs. Paul Ehrlich and L.C. Birch when they wrote in Nature magazine, published by the British Association for the Advancement of Science. Here's what they said, quote, Our theory of evolution has become one which cannot be refuted by any possible observations. Every conceivable observation can be fitted into it. It is thus, quote, outside of empirical science, but not necessarily false. No one can think of ways to test it. Ideas, either with bias or based on a few laboratory experiments, carried out in extremely simplified systems, have attained currency far beyond their validity. They become part of an evolutionary dogma, accepted by most of us as part of our training. End of quote. Now this is an incredible admission, but one that's entirely true. Any view of origins dealing with events of the past is indeed outside the purview of empirical science and cannot be scientifically validated. Moreover, the admission of evolutionary thinking thinking to be dogma definitely assigns it to religious faith. For evolutionists then to ridicule creationists as, as unscientific and religious is totally hypocritical. 
But that doesn't stop them from their relentless diatribes. Francisco Ayala, a biologist and evolutionist, admits, quote, Two criticisms of the theory of natural selection have been raised by philosophers of science. One criticism is that the theory of natural selection involves circularity. The other is that it cannot be subjected to an empirical test. End of quote. What has Darwin's theory actually proved? Marjorie Grenet has stated, quote, Neither the origin and persistence of great new modes of life, photosynthesis, breathing, thinking, nor all the intricate and coordinated changes needed to support them, are explained or even made conceivable on the Darwinian view. And if one returns to read the origin with these criticisms in mind, one finds indeed that for all the brilliance of its hypotheses, for all the splendid simplicity of the mechanism by which it explains so many and so varied phenomena, it simply is not about the origin of species, let alone of the great orders and classes and phyla at all. Its argument moves in a different direction altogether, in the direction of minute, specialized adaptations which lead, unless to extinction, nowhere. That the color of moths and snails or the bloom of the, the castor bean stem or explained by mutation and natural selection is very likely. But how from single cell, and for that matter from inanimate ancestors, there came to be castor beans and moths and snails, and how from these there emerged llamas and hedgehogs and lions and apes and men, that is the question which neo-Darwinian theory simply leaves unasked. End of quote. One of the most notable evolutionists of our time is Theodosius Dobshansky. Concerning the mechanism of evolution, he admits, quote, The evolutionary happenings are unique, unrepeatable, and irreversible. It is as impossible to turn the land vertebrate into a fish as it is to effect that reverse transformation. The applicability of the experimental method to study of such unique historical processes is severely restricted, did because all else by the time intervals involved, which far exceed the lifetime and human experimenter. And yet it is just such impossibility that is demanded by any evolutionists when they ask for, quote, proofs of evolution, which they magnanimously accept as satisfactory, end of quote. This admission by Dobshansky is most telling and reflects the hostility that evolutionists have toward creationists when we demand the irrefutable scientific evidence that they think makes evolution not just a theory, but a fact. As usual, the evolutionists are left with, quote, mud on their faces, end of quote. In 1981, State Senator James L. Holstead of North Little Rock, Pulaski County, Arkansas, 
introduced and acted to the Arkansas Senate, which was to instruct schools to equally teach creationism alongside of evolution. It passed without hearings on March 13, 1981. The House of Representatives in Arkansas debated the bill for 15 minutes before passing it by a vote of 69-18. Governor Frank Wright signed it into law on March 19, 1981. Shortly thereafter, a lawsuit was then filed in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Arkansas by various parents, religious group organizations, biologists, and others who argued that the Arkansas state law, known as the Balanced Treatment for Creation Science and Evolution Science Act, Act 590, which mandated the teaching of creation science in Arkansas public schools, was unconstitutional because it violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Michael Roos, who I've mentioned earlier, a former professor of history and philosophy at the University of Guelph, Ontario, and who is a current professor at Florida State University, was a key witness for the plaintiff in this 1981 test case known as McLean v. Arkansas. After hearing arguments from the plaintiff and defense, Judge William Overton promptly ruled that Act 590 of the Arkansas Legislature was unconstitutional and violated the Establishment Clause concerning the establishment of religion. Overton's decision only brought out the false dichotomy often presented before the public by evolutionists that the issue is science versus religion. As stated already, this is a false dichotomy. Dr. Larry Lauvin, professor of the philosophy of science at the University of Pittsburgh, who himself is an evolutionist, was still critical of Judge Overton's decision when he said, quote, The victory in the Arkansas case was, was hollow, for it was achieved only at the expense of perpetuating in canonizing a false stereotype of what science is and how it works. If it goes unchallenged by the scientific community, it will raise grave doubts about that community's intellectual integrity. End of quote. At least he was honest. Evolutionists today usually lose when they engage in debates with creationists, with capable creationists, because how can an evolutionist win when his whole theory cannot withstand the scrutiny of the scientific method? How can he honestly talk about facts of science and without hypocrisy accuse creationists of adhering to religious fervor when his own views demand more faith than the creationists? No, evolutionists will rely upon intimidation techniques and court judges to protect their, quote, sacred cow of evolution. They bully people with their ad hominem arguments, meaning an argument against the man. They will regularly insult creationists as being silly and ignorant religious nutcases, thinking by such intimidation they can persuade people. By the way, in an ad hominem argument, 
is viewed as an informal logical fallacy because it's no argument at all. It turns attention away from the facts to the person debating them. Usually when this is done, it only demonstrates that the perpetrator of the ad hominem tactic knows they cannot effectively win the debate. Also, evolutionists are good at committing the logical fallacy of appeal to authority, which is an attempt to overawe an opponent by playing on the opponent's reluctance to challenge famous people, time-honored customs, or widely held beliefs. As the evolutionist likes to say, quote, only ignorant people would even think of questioning the undeniable facts of evolution, and no self-respecting scientist questions evolution today, end of quote. Hence, the evolutionist seeks to overwhelm his opponent, not by sound arguments, but by intimidation and insults. When I was in college, I had my own encounters with professors who had problems with my opposition to evolution. There are several instances that stand out in my memory. As I've already shared, I was a pre-med student with a major in zoology. One of the courses that I had to take in my major was called Comparative Anatomy, which had a lab associated with it where we dissected several things, the most complex being a cat. The course on Comparative Anatomy was entirely on the evolutionary development of vertebrates, meaning creatures with backbones. My lab instructor for this class was a lady who, of course, would periodically go on and on about the evolution of various creatures, and occasionally I would raise questions about the validity of evolutionary theory, which, of course, would take her back that someone would actually have the audacity to raise questions about the legitimacy of evolution. I was always respectful and never directly challenging her, but I can remember sometimes when she was a little frustrated with me, she would come over and put some bones on my desk saying, Mr. Ultis, how can you deny such facts? I actually cannot remember why she brought these bones and what the proof for evolution that they were. I cannot even remember all the times that I questioned evolution. But apparently there were enough that I began to become sensitive to how often I was doing this. On a certain occasion, I kept quiet when I shouldn't have, because I definitely knew I had the upper hand on this uh, scenario. My instructor made some critical remark about the Bible one day, stating that the people in the Middle Ages were burned at the stake for saying that men and women had the same number of ribs. Of course, what she was referring to was the biblical account of God taking a rib from Adam and making Eve the first woman. She was mocking the Bible at this point, and I kept quiet this time, which I regret having done so. First, I don't remember in church history of any person being burned at the stake for saying this, not that it possibly could have happened by the Roman Catholic Church, for it was notorious at this time for torturing people. But as a college student then, I didn't know half of what I know now about evolution and its errors, but I did know enough that biologically she was off base, and I knew that I had her on this. 
All I was going to say was, may I ask you a question, ma'am? I suppose that if your husband was to have a leg amputated and you and your husband had a child, I suppose it would be obvious that all your children would be born without a leg, right? I knew I had checkmated her on this one. We don't know if God replaced the rib he took out of Adam, Adam to make Eve, but it doesn't matter. If he didn't, the loss of any body part is not somehow passed on in the sex chromosomes. But this incident shows how college staff will mock the Christian faith when given a chance. I don't remember what I did one day, but I must have challenged evolution again. I will never forget her asking me to stay behind after class one day. She said to me, quote, we're going to go see the dean of the College of Science. When we showed up at his office, he had this perplexed look and said, is there a problem with this student? She said, yes. He doesn't believe in evolution. So they tied me up to a chair, slapped me around for a while, waterboarded me for 30 minutes. Well, I want you to know I didn't crack. Now, I hope you know I'm joking at this part. However, I will never forget the dean of the College of Science sending me down and seeking to prove to me the validity and factual reality of evolution by explaining to me the variations of birds on the Canary Islands off Africa. Well, I knew enough about Darwin's view of natural selection by observing variation of species to know that this was not some proof for macroevolution, that is, the evolution of major kinds from one to another, but simply what today many creationists recognize as microevolution or variation within set kinds that no creationists are disputing. But I really don't like using the term evolution anyway for any part of the diversification of various, various species within a kind. Relating the following personal experience can be of great value to Christian college students that I'm about to say. What do you do when you're in a college classroom and have an exam that wants you to give, quote, the party line on evolution? Do you leave blank the questions and suffer the grade deduction? Here's what you do, and here's what I did in this class on comparative anatomy that I had. In the lection portion of the class, we had a major exam that was exclusively about the evolution of various creatures. The whole exam was nothing but evolutionary lies. Here's what I did. I gave everything the professor wanted with the caveat that the books, what the book says, or what evolutionists say, having answered all the questions, I decided to voluntarily write a three-page addendum to the exam explaining why I did not personally believe anything I had just said in the exam. Of course, I was more interested in the professor's reaction to my addendum essay. When I got back to the exam, the grade was 99, an A+. But, but there was not one comment on my essay, which really did disappoint me. But as Paul Harvey would say, now the rest of the story, 
My college do, uh, dorm roommate was in our college campus Christian ministry. He was also a biology student, but he actually worked as a lab assistant for the main professor for comparative anatomy. I then found out what happened. The professor knew my Christian roommate, Brent, roomed with me. One day he said to Brent, out of nowhere, So Brent, what is wrong with your roommate? My roommate knew nothing of what I had done on my exam. He said, Sir, I, I, I don't know what you mean. The professor said, Well, he has a real problem. He doesn't believe in evolution. As Brent was relating this incident to me, I said to Brent, well, you told him you didn't believe in it either, didn't you? Brent had not said that because I guess he valued his work scholarship and the money that went with it. I forgave him. Students, give professors what they want, and if the conscience demands an action, then do what I did. Write an essay. I accomplished what I wanted. I set forth the truth and still got a good grade. I must relate one more incident that shows the utter absurdity of evolutionary teaching. As a zoology major, I took a class called entomology, which is the study of insects. Having been a rabid collector of butterflies and moths as a kid, I could not pass up this course. I wish I had saved my college textbook but what I'm about to relate was for real what was put in a college textbook. In evolutionary theory, wings supposedly evolved three separate times. In insects, bats, and then in birds. Bats are mammals, by the way, not birds. In my college textbook, it seriously said the following, and I'm paraphrasing. It said that insects in crossing ponds would have to jump from rock to rock to get across. The textbook then said that obviously it would be much simpler for these insects to evolve wings in order to fly across the pond rather than jumping rock to rock. I kid you not. That's what it said. This is what a college textbook said. This is so absurd it's hardly worth refuting. I suppose insect Ralph with his buddy Fred were jumping across the pond on the rocks one day, and Ralph says to Fred, why don't we evolve wings to fly across the pond? Fred says, well, sure, Ralph. But, Ralph, what is a wing? It is ludicrous for evolutionists to have the notion that wings evolved out of expediency for insects to fly across ponds rather than jumping from rock to rock. There's no rational intelligence in evolutionary processes. It is all random anyway, according to their views. By the way, do you even remotely know how sophisticated, complex a wing is? How birds or insects fly is simply mind-boggling. According to Darwinism, wings evolved over millions and millions of years by random mutations, changing one organism to another until we have fully functional wings. One of the great refutations to evolutionary theory 
is that there are no living intermediate species between non-flying insects, bats, bats, or birds. And mind you, unless the body part is functionally developed, then nothing flies. Remember, Darwin's natural selection demands gradual transmutation of species from one creature to another. And the supposed development toward wings is supposed to make the new creature better equipped to survive. After all, the modus operandi of Darwinism is, quote, survival of the fittest. But a half-developed wing will get a creature eaten, eaten by a predator. See how absurd all of this is? I mention these personal stories to demonstrate that the intimidation on college campuses against Christians is a real thing. And this is part of the major problem emerging in the visible church today. Certain professors at Christian institutions are seemingly more concerned about their image as not being perceived as anti-intellectual to mainstream academic intelligentsia. Consider Bruce Waltke, a well-known writer and professor of a Reformed seminary. In an upcoming message, I will discuss the compromising positions of the Biologos Foundation. In the year 2010, it produced a video featuring Bruce Waltke on the subject of evolution. Biologos has since removed the video. For what reason, I'm not sure, but it was not because Waltke espoused theistic evolutionary views. Biologos Foundation is thoroughly entrenched in evolutionary thinking. A most sad commentary because it touts itself as being evangelical. Waltke was a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, Orlando, Florida, but resigned in 2010 due to his views on evolution and was hired by Knox Theological Seminary in Boca Raton, Florida. Knox Seminary openly embraced Dr. Waltke, having no problem with his views. A joint statement by Dr. Luther Whitlock, Chairman of the Board, Dr. Ron Kovac, President of the Seminary, and Dr. Warren Gage, Interim Dean of Faculty, said that, in our opinion, Dr. Waltke's views are wholly compatible with our confessional standards and incompatible with naturalistic and materialistic theories of evolution. That is a sad commentary on that supposed reformed seminary. I would hardly call it reformed and hardly call it worthy of the name of being reformed and touting the Westminster Confession of Faith, but that's for another message. Dr. Waltke's video comments reflect his thinking. He says, quote, I think that if the data is overwhelmingly in favor, in favor of evolution, to deny that reality will make us a cult, some odd group that's not really interacting with the real world. To deny the reality would to deny the truth of God in the world and would be to deny truth. Also, our spiritual death and witness to the world that we're not credible, that we are bigoted. We have a blind faith, and that is what we're accused of. I think it's essential to us, or we'll end up like some small sect somewhere that retained a certain dress or a certain language. 
and they end up so marginalized, totally marginalized, and I think that would be a great tragedy for the church, for us to become marginalized in that way. In a clarification of some of his views, Dr. Waltke made these remarks, quote, I'm not a scientist, but I've familiarized myself with attempts to harmonize Genesis 1 through 3 with science, and I believe that creation by the process of evolution is a tenable biblical position and is represented by Biologos, the best Christian apologetic to defend Genesis 1 through 3 against its critics. For further examples of those who compromise the faith in this regard, these will be addressed in a forthcoming lecture. But for Dr. Waltke to make those comments is shameful.